everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa. Hi, John. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well. A little rainy and dreary here in Minneapolis where I'm sitting, but uh, inside my spirits are sunny. Oh, awesome. Well, welcome to episode 165 of Busy Living Sober. Life Thanks. is beautiful, nice to be Don. I love how you said the inside spirituality, you're really great. Will you tell us what it was like and what happened and what it's like today? Uh, yes, I can briefly. Um, I was a kid raised in the suburbs back in the 70s and uh, discovered drinking when I was 14. Uh, I actually had a, my, the first time I got drunk, um, we raided the liquor cabinet of Justin Morris's parents and we chose the Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey because that was the highest proof. And we mixed it with cherry high C, which I do not recommend for anyone. Exactly. And I remember, you know, getting drunk and loving the feeling. And then also uh, my grandfather had been a skid row alcoholic that my father told me stories about. And so I wanted to be sure I wasn't going to turn out like him. And so I remember walking a line in the pattern of the carpet in the kitchen and being able to do it. And so for me, that was proof that I was not going to have problems with my drinking. Well, fast forward three years and I went to a party my senior year of high school, um, ended up getting busted by the cops and uh, they took me down to the detox where I spent four days. And that was where I started to get the glimmer of understanding that I was powerless and that my, um, I could, it was unmanageable what was happening to me with my use. And so, um, they referred me to treatment and I went in for an assessment and the woman, I, I thought, you know, if I tell her a little bit about what, what I've been doing, uh, th- then she'll think I'm being honest, but I'm not going to tell her everything because then she might think I'll have a problem. So I you know, thought I'd done a really good job. And at the end, she said, um, you are the most deluded kid I've ever met. Well, maybe she said that to all the kids, but it sure hit home with me. And I thought, I might have a problem. So anyway, I went through treatment, and that's where I started to understand uh, the the first step and what it meant to be powerless and my life unmanageable, and that my drinking and smoking dope uh, had been the cause of my problems. You know, I was ready to blame everyone else for my problems, but I started making that connection then. And so that was in the fall of my senior year in high school. I was 17 years old. The last night I drank was September 26, 1981. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful that from that, I discovered the 12 steps and the fellowship and have been able to, you know, through the process of uh, working the steps and trying to live fully and uh, quality life and mend my relationships and be honest and all that, um, you know, life is pretty good today, and I've been able to make, stay sober. That is amazing. So you were out there for three years, and you, like, for you, that was your bottom. That was enough of a bottom for you to reach out for help and stay. How lucky are you? Yeah, no kidding. I, I really do think it's a blessing. And, you know, I had the opportunity to work with kids afterward for quite a few years in my sobriety. And one of the things I learned was that, with uh, adolescence, because of the rapid development of the brain and you know emotional development as well, that addiction can set in within about six months. And so it's not like an adult, um, but the the addiction process is accelerated in uh, adolescence. And so, yeah, I think I was one of those who just was dealt that gene. And as soon as I started drinking and 
and smoking weed, wham, it hit. You know, I could tell because I, I'd be getting high with a group of friends and they liked that and felt good, but I loved it. And I think that really set me apart. Well, that, and I think, and don't you think the fact that your dad planted that little seed in your head, that gave you some fortitude or whatever to look at the fact that, wait a minute, if I drink, I could end up like my grandfather. Well, absolutely. And I remember even when I was 16, uh, I'd had some consequences and my dad said, you know, you could be an alcoholic. And of course my reaction was, what are you crazy? I'm only 16. You're nuts. But um, it was there nagging at the back of my brain. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> what do you know? Dad was right. <laughs> wow. Um, years later, I can admit it. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's a huge gift that your dad gave you, right, in hindsight. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I'll tell you another story. If you, you have time? Yeah, time. I have time. We got. You know, we got to have I, I an just, hour. Let's um, go. <laughs> I actually just told this story last night at a um, at a literary event. But um, so the last night I drank, I uh, like I said, I wound up in detox. And in the past, my parents had always rescued me, and so you know, I fully expected them to come get me and and take me home. But they didn't, and they surprised me this time. They let me sit in detox, and I so I stayed there four days. And um, years later. Uh, my dad was dying of cancer and he wanted to speak to each one of his kids individually. And when it came my turn, I walked into the hospital room where he was staying and his body was weakened, but his spirit was still strong. And he prepared an apology for me. He wanted to make amends and he, and, you know, set things right before he died. And so he apologized for not picking me up from detox, not taking me out sooner and, and rescuing me. And you know, I was just stunned because I've been sober since that night. And what I told him was, Dad, you saved my life by not coming to get me. That was the help I needed to be able to face the consequences of my actions. And, you know, I could just see the relief come over his face. And I thought, oh, my God, what if he hadn't been about to die? He might never have said anything like that to me. I would never have known that this was troubling him. And I would never have been able to tell him what he'd done for me. And he would never have known that. I would never have been able to thank him like that. So, you know, a couple of days later, we were burying him. And before uh, the coffin closed, I put my latest medallion, which at that point was 24 years, into his casket and uh, sent it off with him as a little token of appreciation. So, yeah, when you talk about a gift, no kidding. I mean, my dad, did, you know, for all his failings as a father, that was one of the best things he ever did. It is so, you know, it's so ironic because so many parents out there today think that if they enable their kid, oh my God, I'm going to send him to the next treatment center. I'm going to send him to the next treatment center. What am I going to do next? And I'm going to save him. And I'm going to save him. And I'm going to go pick him up and I'm going to do all these things, but literally like doing the hardest thing, which was making you sit there, which so many parents can't do, right? They can't do it. It's just too hard. It's their, their conscience is like, I can't let my child sit there, but it saved your life. Exactly. But, you know, I'm a parent now. I have two teenagers. And I tell you, it's not easy. I mean, do you have kids yourself? Oh, I have three kids. I have three children. I just actually interviewed my oldest one. He just came on the podcast for the first time this past week. And he was like, Mom, you know, seeing having the communication that your dad had with you 
thing to, oh, by the way, your grandfather, my son, fortunately or unfortunately, saw me. I got sober when he was 10, but his father didn't get sober till he was 19. So he saw two lives, you know, one with the sober mom and then one with the drunk dad. And it was, you know, for him, it's been such a lifesaver because he knows that if he has a problem, he can come to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something we really offer our kids too. It's, it, and also, like I've learned just working the program, right? Being able to admit I'm wrong and apologize. I know, you know, my son has learned that from me because he'll be a jerk and come apologize just like he sees me doing with him. Um, but what, kind of my point, what I, I was going to say is it, it, it's not easy being a parent, I think. And you know, what works yeah. for one kid doesn't work with another. And, and it seems like we're just constantly kind of fumbling along, doing the best we can. But but a lot of times we don't know what the best thing is for our kids or uh, for us to do. So it's, um, I have great sympathy for anybody dealing with you know, a kid who uh, uses a problem. And I have, as you can imagine, I have a lot of people, and I don't know if you do as well, but I have a lot of people that reach out to me that have, I mean, I had somebody today who reached out to me and they're like, my child, my son's 30 years old. I've had him in and out of treatment centers. I don't know what to do. He just went back into treatment again because he picked up a medicinal, like a vitamin that ended up, the person was like ODing on. And it was, it's an herbal vitamin. And I guess it's some form that gets you, that makes you hallucinate. And they were abusing it. And now they're back in a facility again. And the person's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Where can I put this person? And it's yeah. horrible. It is, but they're lucky to have you as a resource. And, you know, I often feel if I'm, I'm pretty open about being in recovery and, uh, you know, they say it's a program of attraction and promotion. So I just kind of hope if people know I'm in recovery, that they will feel comfortable approaching me if they have a problem or if one of their, they have a, a problem with one of their kids. Well, it's such a gift and especially you because you got sober at such a young age. So you get it. Cause did you come in thinking, you know, a lot of people come in thinking, Oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to do? Like for you, I mean, your prime for your prom, you know, all the p- parties in high school, um, football games, um, homecoming, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you went through sober. Right. My initial plan was I'll get sober. I won't drink for three months because that'll lead me up to New Year's Eve. And I've heard that the drunk New Year's Eve senior year is really good. And I don't want to miss that. <laughs> So that was my plan, <laughs> going into treatment, right? Like, yeah, we'll do this. I'll take the three-month cure. Thank you. And then, uh, you know, as I sat there and listened and learned a little more, I thought, oh, shit, that's not going to work. I have to stay sober longer. Um, and, you know, when you sit and think like, oh, for the rest of my life, well, when you're young, that's a really long time. But, you know, it was a day at a time. And um, I tell you, by the time I got to college, and I saw kids going off the rails who, you know, had not really tried partying much in high school. I was so grateful not to be part of that. And, um, yeah, there were some times I felt a little lonely not being uh, going to the parties and being involved in that social life. But at the same time, I thought, God, that's just not something I want to do anymore. That seems so adolescent, so high school, because uh, that's what it was for me. So, you know, I was able to form some other friendships. It seemed a little more meaningful and, and um yeah, yes, I, you know, I missed out on certain things, but at the same time, I felt like I, I gained a lot more than I lost. And did you live on campus, like a regular college campus in the dorm and all that? Yeah, I went to a small college in uh, central Minnesota called St. John's University, and it, it was 
you know, Friday afternoon, you'd start hearing the stereos get a little louder. The You see guys carrying case of beers into the dorms. And so it was like just that party mood was amping up. And um, I often would find like I needed to go somewhere else, um, get off campus or, you know, hang out with sober friends. And I was grateful, too. They were fortunate. There were a couple AA meetings actually on campus. And it was a small college. It was just 1,700 um, students at an all-male college and 1,700 women at the sister school five miles away. But somehow I managed to, to get to it. And like I said, I made some really good friendships um, with people who were sober and with uh, people who weren't. But, you know, they've been lasting lifelong friendships. Isn't that amazing? Because today now they have these collegiate recovery programs, which are yeah, exactly. also it's, I love them. Like there's one at the college of Charleston where my daughter goes to school, not that she participates in it, but it's available. And it's just such an awesome resource for kids today. I think. Yeah. I think our understanding has certainly come a long way. I know here in Minneapolis, Augsburg college has one too, a sober uh, housing and, um, you know, not just for kids who are abstaining, but kids who are in recovery. And so I think it's a great thing. My brother actually I, went there. Oh, to Augsburg? Yeah, he did. Oh, how about that? Isn't that awesome? He didn't stay sober, yeah. unfortunately, but um, but he did go there when he was young. And um, it was what a gift he had. It just, it, you know, for some people, it just doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. It's true, and that's always a mystery to me, too, why it works for one and not for another. Um, yeah, I think some of it has to do with maybe a willingness to get honest and, and to really apply the steps, but I've seen people do that and then not make it, too. So it's, um, I'm just grateful for uh, what I've got and the miracle I get to see in others who uh, get the gift of sobriety. And tell me this, do you still use 12-step meetings? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I don't like the whole Zoom thing. I've, I've gone to Zoom meetings, um, but I miss that personal contact, and I miss the, the, you know what I miss is being in the room at the end, like if we say the serenity prayer, there's yeah. just a feeling, and I often go to men's meetings, and there's just a feeling in the room of like this, especially a large meeting, like 40, 50, 60 guys, it's just so powerful, like how many times do you see men put their arms around one another and pray together? <laughs> and it's such a it's a powerful feeling, you know, and I just can't replicate that on Zoom. I can get this, you know, here's people tell their stories, talk about their struggles, how they're working the steps, but being honest, you know, I can see that on Zoom, but I can't get that same feeling. But anyway, so yes, I, I still go to meetings, I sponsor guys, I go to, um, I hear fifth steps, I read the the big book and the 12 by 12, the 12 by 12 is my favorite of the two, and um, yeah, I just try to keep 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 doing what I've learned works, you know, one day at a time. And so, John, what do you? Th- how are you doing in this pandemic? And how do you believe? Out, I, I see a lot of things, a lot of memes, and sometimes I hear it on the news, and you see different articles go by about how many people are using alcohol more than uh, than usual to get through these times. And what are your thoughts on that? And how are you managing through the pandemic? Well, you know, there's a. I can't put my finger on it right now, but there's somewhere in the big book it talks about how uh, when World War II came around, guys went off to fight and mm-hmm. they managed to stay sober and stuff. And it's like, you know, it, 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 this is just, I mean, it's still daily life, right? Where, where we, st- it's important to use those things 
or do those things that have worked for us up to this point. So for me, that includes you know, meetings, talking to people, being um, uh, grateful, being of service, exercising, trying to eat well, trying to sleep well, doing my work, which for me is really meaningful and gives me purpose. I'm a writer. Um, and so all those things kind of add up and help. But, you know, it's certainly a time, too, when my anxiety is heightened. Like in the morning, sometimes I'll read the paper and I'll just kind of be overcome with fear. And But it's like I've learned, what do I do when I'm afraid? Oh, I have to talk to somebody. So I'll pick up the phone I'll call someone or I'll pray or I'll um, be able to um, – Remind myself, okay, it's one day at a time. Live with what's before me, what I know. I can try to prepare for tomorrow, but just stay in today. Because usually it's the fear of going down the road of like, oh, my God, what's going to happen when the grocery stores or shelves are empty and we're all out foraging for ourselves and, you know, stealing each other's food. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute. That's not today. <laughs> stay in today. But also, you know, a friend called today, and, and he's been sober over 30 years. We've been good friends for more than 30 years. And he, um, we've talked about this, how for men, it's really hard to pick up the phone sometimes. And, and, and most guys, like normal guys, not guys in recovery, but normal guys, don't just pick up the phone and call someone without an excuse. You know, they don't just call another guy and say, hey, how you doing? But this friend and I were commenting on that, how we've learned to do that in the program and how important that is to be able to just reach out and try to. And so that's a skill, I think, that many of us in the program have and help us break the isolation of the social distancing because, um, you know, we're pr- it seems like we're prone to that. And this could be an excuse for like, oh, the governor said I've got to isolate. <laughs> so I'm not talking to anybody. Um, but, you know, it's like, I know, I get lonely. I start getting goofy in my head. So uh, anyway, I, I long answer your question, but it's like learning some of those things that have worked and then being able to apply them and practice them today is helping me cope with this current situation. And tell me this, if you – if there's a young, and I don't know how many 17-year-olds listen to this podcast, but if their parents are listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I see my child and they're doing these, you know, they're smoking or they're drinking to this extreme and I know I've got alcoholism in my family, what what should I do? What advice do you have for them? Well, you know, I, I just had this conversation with a neighbor uh, via email today about um, being worried about our kids and um he said how his kid was in treatment. They told him to go to Al-Anon, so he did, you know, thinking that, oh, well, that'll be, you know, it'll help my kid stay sober. And then he got there and realized, oh, wait, this is for me. Well, that's how they trick you to get you to Al-Anon, right? But it's what works. It's I really think Al-Anon is a great program if, you know, we're concerned. And this is what I tell my friends. And um, when they come to me with problems, you know, talking about their kids' problems, it's like, what can I do for them? It's like, go to Alana. Because <laughs> the healthier we get, the healthier or better chance I think we have of really helping them and not trying to control them, not trying to um, uh, cure them or not feeling guilty thinking we caused it um, to, to hit on the three C's of Alana. But, you know, the other thing is um, I, I wrote this novel about a kid or a young man who's working in a treatment center and he's dealing with, it's an adolescent treatment center. And like one uh, friend asked, well, has your son read it? My son just turned 18. And I was like, no, I wish he would. But <laughs> I, I gave him, gave him a copy, but it, you know, it's that idea we can only beat a horse to water, you know, again, as parents, we can't make them drink. And so, um, 
if there, but if there are kids out there, you know, I think it's like hearing others' stories. There's that power in stories. And if they can just, I, I tell them when I work with kids in treatment, I tell them, you know, the first thing we do is the ears. We stop listening, especially those people who care about us. And if they can just open their ears a little bit, let in the concerns of others, they might get a more realistic uh, perspective on their own situation. That's my advice to the, the kids. And um, do you? What is your thought about? You know, you go and you have a child that's, you know, smoking a little weed and mm-hmm. maybe not going to the extremes. Like they're not stealing your car, stealing your money, but you know that they're smoking a little weed. And people say, "Oh, you need to take your child to treatment." And then you know, the child goes to treatment and they learn all these things that they never knew. And now they come back a bigger train wreck than when they left, because now you've taken them to, I hate to say this, but the land of misfit toys. So now you're with more misfit toys that are teaching you more things that you never even knew. What's your stance on that? Well, first off, I'm no expert, right? But my thought is that if like, you know, I'm looking at my own son who kind of fits that description and I want to, um, I'm trying to be patient and wait for the natural consequences. There have been some that are more apparent to me than perhaps to him. So, you know, change in attitude, then uh, proclivity toward more isolation, pull, withdrawing from the family, a little more irritable, et cetera. Um, I also think his grades are slipping, um, which he attributes to the senior slide. But, you know, he's in college, he got accepted to college, so why did, what does it matter anymore? But I think it's like until he really starts feeling the consequences of his decisions and gets uncomfortable enough to where he wants to change, he's not going to. And that's where, you know, I think most of all of us in recovery, like, you know, we, we had to get pretty miserable before we were willing to make a change. And so I, I don't think you can force it. Right. So it's like, oh. I've just tried to plant these seeds too, like, uh, you know, your values can change. <laughs> you change your values to match your behavior instead of most people want to change their behavior to fit their values. And so, you know, I try to plant these little seeds and fuck with them a bit and uh, get that in his head <laughs> so it messes up his using or his enjoyment. But I think mostly I just have to be patient. And and who knows, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he'll come through fine. He'll, he'll mature and make healthy decisions for himself and he won't uh, end up in treatment or AA. Well, I can tell you for mine, my oldest, not to interrupt, but my oldest was the one that I was worried about. And I was like, oh my gosh. And he went and he was wild and he was crazy his freshman year of college. And then he snapped Mm -hmm. out of it. And, you know, and my youngest is a a sophomore in college and he has also kind of snapped out of it. They kind of like get into the rhythm and realize, okay, we've been doing this long enough. I, we know what's going to happen if we actually tip that. We go past, we go past that tipping point where you can't go back, right? Where you're waking yeah. up and when you have one sip, you have a million in your blackout all the time. So being aware, I think, has been beneficial to them. And I also, for me, the tool that I've used the most, and I want, and I also want to get your opinion on this, was, um, you know, I was raised. My father's Jewish, my mother's Irish Catholic, and, you know, I had some form of religion growing up. It was always kind of damning and shameful and um, scary, to be honest. So -hmm. when I came into the program, you know, learning that, you know, a lot of people are fearful, don't want to come into the program because either they hear about, oh, my God, it's this God culty thing, you know, that they have that, that AA, quote unquote, AA or 12 steps or whatever it is, they use all this God stuff. And I have to say that that 
good orderly direction or God, my higher power that I had, that really helped me during my, you know, 14, almost God willing, hopefully 14 years of recovery that I will have in August is turning it over to that, whatever that may be for me, which to me, I call it God, you know, I can turn this over, mm-hmm. turn my kids over to that too. And what are your thoughts on like, how have you worked the God thing? How's the God thing, you know, been for you in your life and how has it worked for you since you were 17? Um, well, it's a, a big question, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a huge first, question. It's yeah, hard. First of all, I just want to go back to your, your sons, and you said how they were able to sort of come to this realization themselves that, hey, this isn't how I want things to go. I want to make some changes. And some kids are able to do that on their own, and, you know, they just kind of they mature and, and are able to grow, and that's on their own, and that's terrific. And then others, I think, need more of an intervention. Um, but yeah, it helps to have a spirituality, I think, and to be able to turn them over to the care of a higher power, a loving, caring, higher power. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic by very uh, conservative uh, parents, and you know they did the best they could to instill a, a faith <laughs> belief in us. But the unfortunate consequence of it was that uh, you know we were shame based, and so there's been some relearning that's needed to take place in, in uh, recovering. What I love is how the AA puts the emphasis on God as we understood him. Mm-hmm. And I had a conversation with my daughter the other day, and you know, she quickly pointed out, yeah, but him, that's a preconceived notion right there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and she's right, of course. But that idea that God as we understand God, however we come to an understanding of God, and, and I think through our own experience and talking to others, that's how we do it. And so that's been immensely helpful to me to have a, a belief in something deeper than myself. And like, I'm looking out my window right now and things are starting to get green here in Minneapolis and the buds are coming out on the trees and the grass is greening up and, you know, flowers are starting to sprout and, and pop. And just that mystery of the rebirth of the earth after, you know, lying dormant in the winter uh, gives me hope, but also makes me realize there's something out there. There's some force that through the uh, green fuse or drives the green fuse, whatever the Dylan Thomas line is. But that, that you know that that life force is happening, and and it's not me. I'm not responsible for this. So there's something greater than me out there, and I'm just trying to kind of uh, look around and see what it is that um, I can, uh, I guess, turn my will my my. Um, life over to, to, to believe in. <clears throat> I guess here's my thing. Nature has been especially important to me too during this pandemic to walk around and, and notice what's happening. So we've been going for more walks, my wife and I, and even my, just me with a dog, but um, it's been a great time to be observing that. And my two prayers these days are wow. And thanks. Mm. You know, as I walk. About uh, yeah. I love that. Those are my favorites because they're easy, right? Yeah, and there's so much, you know, if we just kind of stop thinking about ourselves and look outside and, you know, we like there's a bird who's made a nest outside my wife's, the window of my wife's office and um, looks like she's got some eggs in there and it's just really great to be watching that or we'll see waterfowl migrating on a lake nearby. Um, They've been passing through, you know, these different birds or um, like I said, watching the flowers come up in the yard and the grass turn green and these blossoms. And, you know, um, here's some uh, the trees are flowering too, or bushes are flowering. And so it's just like it's an exciting time. And if you just, you know, can, like I said, pay attention to it, 
it's pretty amazing. Isn't it? And you would have thought, you know, thinking back, and I can't do the math because I don't know how old you are, but. 55. 55. So thinking back to when you were 17 and you're going to give up drugs and alcohol for the rest of your life, and then you're going to have a life like you have today. I could never have imagined it. And I mean, most of us at 17 can't imagine being 55 anyway. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Can you really still be alive at 55? <laughs> you know, we wonder <laughs> and again, my kids are quick to remind me how old I am. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I am just really grateful. And there's a guy in one of my meetings who says, and I love this line, he says, you know, I never intended on getting this healthy. <laughs> and it's true. It's like, it just kind of happens. I think if we keep, keep working uh, the program and it's, um, uh, yeah, for me, cause now it's, it's like, I'm not really worried today that I'm going to get drunk, but I am more concerned about like quality of life. And, um, for me, that's often measured in the impact I have on others around me. And if, you know, my relationships, I can put those in order and keep those in order and be a little kind and a little giving to others and tolerant. And I, I've been trying to practice more patience and generosity in this, pandemic because I think we're all anxious and scared and so we just need to cut each other a little more slack and you know my better moments I'm able to do that and it's like I go to bed feeling really good on those days when I've done, done you know practice these principles Did I lose? yeah I'm here I'm here okay I thought I lost you no <laughs> so you practice these principles in all your affairs you know, John, it was great talking to you today. Well, thanks. Great to talk to you. You know, it's just, it's um, uplifting to be able to talk about positive stuff and, and the gifts we've been given, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. And I know that you wrote to me originally because you wrote a book and you're about to, it's about to be published or it is published. And I know it's coming out in May. And um, I just wanted to say thank you for reaching out. And if you want to, I can put a link. And if anybody wants to read, you, now do you have more than one? It sounds like this is, what number book is this for you? This, this is my ninth book. It's my first novel. My, my actual first book was a collection of short stories called Life is Just a Party about a teenage uh, alcoholic addict. Uh, go, and then the, this one is about a young guy who got sober or is sober and is working at a treatment center with other you know, young people trying to help them get sober. So funny how art imitates life, right? Um, but yeah, so this one is called The Clean Heart and it comes out in May. And, um, but it, I hope it does give uh, people inspiration. It's, you know, it's a, like at the beginning I write, I quote Robert Frost who said, um, something we were withholding made us weak until we found out that it was ourselves we were withholding and forthwith found salvation in our surrender. And I just think he nailed it there, the paradox of recovery, right? Like that first step we, re, we and second and third step, we, we surrender, and then that's our salvation, right? That's what saves us is, and how we find our strength is by surrendering. So that's mm. what the theme of this novel is. Well, I will put a link and all this information on the podcast today, and I want to thank you again for coming on Busy Living Sober. I really appreciate it. And I hope you stay healthy and sane during this pandemic. And um, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. And it's been a highlight of my day to be able to talk with you. And, um, I think it's going to help keep me sober today, too. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And until next time, everyone, keep getting busy living sober. Take care. Take care.
Bye-bye, John. Bye, Busy. Thanks, Kim. Take care. Thank you.